This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be back together another day. A lot more to talk about. Uh, In a moment, we'll talk with David Horowitz, the great David Horowitz, about um, what is uh, going on in terms of the fight against the left. He was the left. You remember David Horowitz, the David Horowitz Freedom Center, and he started out on the left as a a, a self-described leftist, Marxist, um, revolutionary, and he became conservative. And the best thing he does is tell you what the real deal is. So we'll talk with David Horowitz in a few moments. And Brandon Weikart makes another appearance. Brandon Weikart has been on before. He wrote a book called Winning Space, Winning Space. And this topic is near and dear to my heart because the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked, wrote in the 1950s, late 1950s, a book uh, called uh, Strike from Space, and it was about Star Wars and the need for mes- missile defense. Well, <clears throat> this is uh, Brandon Weikert's book, which is from Republic Book Publishers, is about, it's called Winning Space. We're going to have him on, and I, I want to talk to him about the, where our military is, and in particular, how important space is for our future. So we'll talk with Brandon Weikart in a few moments. Before we get to that, it's what you now know. When we're done with this segment, you will now know something about what's happening in a way that you didn't, hopefully, before. And uh, very popular. Once a day, I send out an email that highlights uh, a couple of points and some articles to read. It's called The Daily Wink. And if you go to ProAmericaReport.com, you can sign up there and get that sent to you. So today... What you need to know today, and I did this in a, in a uh, video earlier this morning uh, on, on uh, let me see what the day it is here, Wednesday, Wednesday morning at 9.45 East Coast time, I jumped on and did a, a, um, and did a, uh, a streaming video, uh, which is available on Facebook at Ed Martin Live, on uh, YouTube at uh, Phyllis Schlafly Eagles uh, channel, and also on social media at, uh, Eagle Ed, at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter and Ed Martin on uh, both Parlor and Gab. And the uh, topic I was talking about, this is what I want to talk to you about, is voter confidence. Voter confidence. And here's what I want to tell you. We are seeing playing out in front of us the exact thing that I predicted, which is the narrative machine has tried to say that anyone who believes that there was a problem with the 2020 elections is 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 crazy. They want you to believe that you're crazy or not. You're actually some sort of seditious, wild uh, rumor monger, conspiracy theorist. And they will say over and over again, no court has held that there was widespread fraud. And I concede that no court has held that. But that's not the only way. It's not the only way that we have elections and have institutions and have things work. So when Georgia passed election integrity reform, that's what I'll call it, there, I tell people there are two reasons to pass election reform. One is if you see fraud, there's an instance of fraud. Therefore, I must pass a photo ID because we have people who are saying they're one person and they're another. In the case, my own case, when I was chairman of the Board of Elections in St. Louis, uh, we had people voting on both sides of the river in Missouri and Illinois. So we did some things to try to check. We create, we, we I didn't have legislation, but we took actions, executive actions as the election authority to change that. When we had ACORN, one of the ACORN affiliated groups, I think it was called Missouri Pro Vote, or it might have been just straight up ACORN. I might be getting that wrong, but it was it was reported at the time. So if my memory fails, you do a search, you'll find it. 
But right before registration, voter registration closed, like the day before or the day of the closing, the deadline, we had thousands of, of uh, applications for voter registration uh, handed in. And when we did a verification, it turns out there was lots of uh, sloppy work and really fraud. And we referred it to the uh, to the prosecutors. They didn't act, but that's not my problem. I forward, But I mostly said, what do we do? to make sure we do elections better. And we went through and we were very careful. Another thing was we had a special election for an aldermanic seat where somebody had lost his seat and uh, passed away, I think. And we had way too much um, uh, way too much mail-in balloting from one set of uh, residences. You know, it was a high-rise tower and it had like 95 or 98 percent. So we, we went to everybody and said, hey, we got to do something different because there's some reason to think there's fraud. In other words, you when you see fraud, you take action. However, the other reason to enact changes to your elections, including laws, is when people don't have confidence the system works. And in St. Louis on Tuesday, just this week, Tuesday, in St. Louis City, I think it was 14, less than 15 percent of the people that were eligible to vote voted in Jefferson County, a big county south of St. Louis, uh, like six or eight percent voted. In other words, voter participation is way down. And when you're trying to run an election authority, you're looking for ways to get a voter participation up. And one of them is to give people confidence that their vote counts. It matters. It won't be stolen. It won't be mishandled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You go about making changes to your election authority even after successful elections because you're trying to increase voter confidence. So, for example, when I was chairman of the Board of Elections, we had a significant problem, in my estimation, of uh, certain groups of people in St. Louis that didn't vote. In particular, Bosnian-Americans, American citizens who were from Bosnia and had become American citizens, and especially Vietnamese-American citizens who had come to Viet- from Vietnam to St. Louis and were citizens, they were voting at very low rates, and we are addressing this, saying, how do we do outreach? How do we do some things in, the, in their native languages? How do we give them confidence that their vote counts, that they won't be, uh, mis- it won't be mistreated, they won't be judged, et cetera, et cetera? And we went through that, which brings us to today. We have a problem in this country where most Republicans think that the elections are not of high integrity. And many Democrats agree. In that vacuum, in that, not the vacuum, in that um, setting, you would be crazy not to consider election reforms, integrity in elections, which is what Georgia did. And the common sense reforms they did, it, frankly, it wasn't as conservative as I would have liked. But it was, I think, things that made sense, including photo ID, including requirements regarding uh, signature verification, things that are common sense. And here's where it gets wild. There, back to, I'll just set this up again. What you now know is there are two reasons that, that make common sense uh, and are justifications for making changes in elections. One is you see fraud, you got to fix it. The other is you see a problem in voter participation, voter confidence, you got to address it. That's what Georgia did. And and the narrative machine has come up over the top on the American people and has just tried to smother us and say it's completely unjustified to pass election reform of any kind because there was no fraud in, in November 2020. And I, 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 I am not willing to agree that there was no fraud, but I am willing to concede for the purposes of this conversation or an argument is, OK, that's not the reason. But another really good reason is 
the lack of voter confidence in the system. And the next line that you'll hear the left say is Donald Trump and his supporters did that by claiming there was a problem. There were plenty examples in 2016 and 2018, but mostly after 2016, of the Democrats doing that, of Hillary Clinton doing that, talking about Russia, Russia, Russia. And it doesn't matter now who said it or why. What matters is 14% participation in the election in St. Louis this week. And what matters is two-thirds of all Republicans think the elections are rigged. And a third of Democrats think there's problems. Whatever the reasons are, common sense reforms and the judgment of the state legislatures should be reasonable. Well, let me say it. It is reasonable. It should be acceptable. And the notion that the narrative machine, big tech, big media, and big government is trying to jam down our throats that this is uh, some sort of draconian, crazy set of rules. It doesn't pass the smell test. And we, the people, need to have a better articulation of, of course, we're going to address the problems. No matter how you think it turned out, people don't feel good about it. They saw the polls, the counting stop for an hour or two and then restart and suddenly it switches. They see all of those things, I concede again, have not been shown to be fraud in a court. But they've been shown to be a part of the facts that people know that makes them wonder. And the idea that somehow the media and Major League Baseball and Delta and others are going to say, you you know, these are draconian. It's insane. Let me tell you a quick story. When I worked at CNN, I was a contributor. You know, they flew me up to New York City from St. Louis about three for three or four days a week for about six months. And I had to get a photo ID issued by CNN to enter the building. When you go to Major League Baseball to pick up your tickets at Will Call, you need a photo ID. You know, this is common sense stuff. And here's the great thing about this moment. It's backfiring on the Democrats regarding Georgia. Stacey Abrams, the far left uh, sort of lady that's helped uh, uh, change the uh, voting rules and and litigate and all, admits that she doesn't want the Major League Baseball to take the All-Star game away. Millions and millions lost by Georgia families. Georgia low-income African-American families lost. She said she didn't want that. But what she really wanted was to make sure that she... And others could not let this happen in other states, which brings me to the last part of this. What we have to do is take what we now know and go to our legislators in Missouri, in California, in Nevada, in Idaho, and buck them up. Give them the strength and encouragement because what Stacey Abraham signaled is what the narrative machine is doing. If you can't win in Georgia in terms of gutting the law, make it harder for any other state's leaders to do something meaningful. Raise the cost. They're playing the long game here. And we better snap to it and understand what's going on. Because I did a radio interview early on Wednesday on a station out of Illinois. And a friend of mine was on there. We were doing a sort of twofer together. And as he said, we can get this back. We can hold this country if we can win in 2022 and get people that really understand what's at stake. But only that's only possible if we're able to get the elections to go right All right, we'll take a break. We got a lot more. Brandon Weikert, David Horowitz coming up. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. (music) 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest has been on with us before. His name is Brandon Weikert. Uh, I, he's most famous in my life for uh, the book Winning Space, which uh, they sent me. I love Republic Book Publishers, a great uh, publishing house. They sent me a copy of the book. It's really extraordinary. He himself self, uh, manages the Weikert Report, World News Done Right. He's a writer over at Am Greatness. You'll see American Greatness. You'll see American Spectator, all kinds of things. And he has, uh, uh, well, he's all trained up in this. He's got a master's in the National security issues and uh, studied over in Oxford. But here's the thing. He's got a piece in the Washington Times that talks about our military readiness. And one of the things in his book, again, the book is called uh, the uh, it's Republic Book Publishers, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, Brandon Weikert, is, but his op-ed piece is on our readiness. And so, Brandon, welcome back to the program. Before we get into the piece more substantially, the first, second paragraph, first paragraph, you're quoting the top Navy enlisted man, uh, a chief gunner, uh, Mingo, who basically basically says that we're going we're gonna to lose the next war. How do you get away with saying that if you're still in the Navy? It's one thing when you leave, but can he get, can he get away with that? Or did he mean to say that? Or what's, how, what's the background on that quote? Yeah, he's the senior enlisted man in the Navy. And so part of his job is writing reports on readiness. And as part of his job, he wrote for the Naval Institute Press, their website, he and his people did a, a study on readiness for the Navy, and they were trying to get the warning out to people in, in, in the political circles and in the public oh, I see. that, hey, we're, we're spending all this money and we're talking for years about readiness. Well, guess what? One of the main branches of our armed forces, despite all the money and all the equipment and all the training and all the deployments, we're not ready for a real fight. And so he was trying to to raise a warning to to our leaders that they need to take it seriously. Well, that's it. So, so that's it. okay. That explains that. Thank you. Now to, to the heart of your piece. When you use the term "spent force," that's the phrase "spent force," um, meaning that we're spread too thin. Or maybe you can clarify exactly what you mean. But, but I, you know, Donald Trump and he got a lot of. He often said he, you know, raised pay in the military, he bought lots of gear, right. he got us going, created the space force. Your piece is basically, you know, sort of. Um, I don't know, laying that bare a bit and saying, well, you might have spent money, but we're still stretched too thin. Walk us through the reality. Yeah, well, so the problem is now we have the, the Defense Department, which is consuming the largest share of the federal budget. And yet we have all of these overseas commitments and we only have 1% of our 320 million odd population. 1% of them are only involved in the U.S. military. And then we have also an additional group of you know, private military contractors. But that's a very small group of people being sent all around the world at the same time for indefinite you know, amounts of time to go fight any brush war that erupts. And in the meanwhile, we've got these huge juggernauts now in China, in Russia, even Iran and North Korea that are now really coming online to challenge us at a great state level, the likes of which we really haven't had to contend with since at least the 1980s Soviet Union. But really, in terms of multiple actors like this, we haven't had to contend with since before 1940. And so we're not used to that. And our forces have become accustomed to basically only having a 
small amount of people involved, deploying them repeatedly around the world, and then using technology to augment that relatively small force. We call that a force multiplier. The problem is now we're doing so much with so little all the time that when Congress is so bad about upgrading systems that they actually need to fight with, like the A-10, for instance, the Warthog, which is a great fight, which is a great plane for air support, but the, 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 the politicians don't like it because it's not that expensive. It's old. They prefer to spend money on these new technologies like the F-35, which are nowhere near as capable at fighting the kind of fights we're currently fighting uh, as the old A-10 is even. And so there's this sort of um, uh, inability to recognize real needs versus what politicians think they want to have. Uh, I talked to an Air Force general recently, and he said the problem is we're getting handed systems and weapons that we don't need for a fight that we're not going to have to fight. And what we really need are weapons, you know, that they don't want to spend on. Uh, the Congress doesn't. And so now you have this issue where you have a completely mismatched force. It's overstretched and it's frankly overburdened. And so what we need to do is, is allocate funding to specific needs like space, cyber, uh, electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, we need to also start building more submarines. We don't have enough subs. And if we go to war with China anytime soon, uh, it's going to be submarines that are going to be the tip of that sphere. So those are issues that we need to fixate on and, and divert money to. But the Pentagon and the Congress won't do it. They're still building these, you know, the, the great air systems of that are designed to fight the Cold War. Cold War's over. We've got new enemies that are a lot more innovative, frankly. Uh, we're talking with uh, Brandon Weikart, and, and again, his book is called Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and also he's got a piece up in the Washington Times uh, a few days ago uh, now. Actually, it's almost uh, a little bit more than a week ago, and the title of that, I'll put it up on social media, is Addressing and Strengthening the, weak the Weaknesses of the U.S. Military. Uh, Brandon, is the um, when, when you talk about China as the number one strategic competitor, um, part of me thinks – Whoever owns space wins. I mean, they, it may be 50 right. years till you win, but if you own space, you win, which means, you know, right now, I, I know we have had attention, and I think uh, initially President Biden's team sort of hemmed and hawed a bit because they didn't like giving Trump the credit for the Space Force, but then they backed off right. and said, we're still going to be there. But are we really, are we serious about winning space now? I mean, can you say that, or are we sort of whistling past the, 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 uh, the, the launch pad? No, we're not serious. Uh, to, to the Biden administration's credit, they really walked back their initial, uh, you know, disliking of the Space Force. And I now have heard from people that I know at the top tier of Space Force saying they feel comfortable that they have the political support now to continue the mission that Trump began for them four years ago. The problem is the 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 space force operating budget is a paltry 15 billion dollars now to you and i it's a lot of money but if you compare that to the air force's overall budget which i think was like 109 billion dollars it might have even been 409 billion dollars but the thing is it was hugely more for the air force than for the space force and i understand that the air force is an older branch that that has a lot more responsibilities but frankly the most important thing in war is the high ground and the air is no longer the high ground spaces and so they need more than 15 billion dollars in the space force to not only protect our satellites but then to develop the strategies to continue to dominate space so that china or russia or even North Korea or Iran don't take a shot at our satellites, which are hanging very precariously in orbit. And if we lose those satellites, as we've discussed before, 
then that's it. We lose the land, we lose sea, we lose air, we lose cyber. That's it for America's military. We are going to have a significant problem being able to defend where we're supposed to be defending, say, Taiwan or the, the South China Sea or the Baltics or the Middle East. Uh, we're going to have a lot of problems. Uh, all right, Brandy, you said the thing I was going to ask you next, because it's not as specific to our military uh, readiness or our space. But h- how is it not? How, it feels like the Chinese are, are doing to Taiwan what they did to Hong Kong. Now, I know it's not the same. They actually got Hong Kong turned over to an independent state and then they slowly but surely. But it, I mean, if tomorrow the Chinese moved in on, on Taiwan, I mean, are we going to fight a war over that? Well, I think that initially we would, through just uh, a reaction, yes, we would deploy forces. But the problem is, like I said, we don't have a big enough force to take on China, and our Navy is stretched thin. And so what's going to happen is we'll send some forces in, we'll have some allies probably playing with us, and what will happen is China's going to knock out those satellites, they're going to go after us in cyberspace, and then they're going to also degrade the EM spectrum, which our communications gear relies on, and so they're going to deny us the ability to coordinate and communicate, and then they'll have those American forces, that handful that we deploy, they'll have them isolated, and they'll be able to destroy them or to keep them away from the main fight while they move into Taiwan. And the whole goal of Beijing is to keep the the full force of America's military over the horizon long enough for them to take Taiwan and to fully, you know, bring it to heel. That way they force Washington to negotiate a new settlement wherein China is the big dog in the Indo-Pacific and America's kept beyond forever and always on the defensive. That's what this is about. It is a political objective. Take Taiwan, keep the Americans out long enough to secure it, and then force the Americans to basically surrender the Indo-Pacific to China and a new world order is born right there. And it's going to happen a lot sooner than people think. If you were trying to uh, change that or change the direction, what's, what's your top two or three things you say you have to do? Well, the first thing is we've got to flood Space Force with a crap load more of money than that they have, even if it means we have to take from other branches like the Air Force. And we've got to let them build out satellites that are more survivable, easier to replace. They need to invest in things like CubeSats, these small satellites that can keep them in a fight longer. Then we need to invest in these uh, co-orbital offensive satellites that can hunt down the satellites of other countries and knock them out of orbit so that the other countries like China or Russia know if you mess with us in orbit, we're going to so totally dismantle you that you're going to be sent back to the Stone Age. Then we need to build out industrial policy. The one thing that the Biden administration has said that I agree with is they want to build out infrastructure in the U.S. in order to compete with the comprehensive national power of China. The problem is they're not talking about specifically things like we need greater capabilities to build more ships in the United States to build more submarines at a faster clip. Right now, the Navy cannot meet current demand, and that's not wartime demand. They can't meet current demand for increased submarines until 2025. If you know, if a war happens in the next few years, we're not going to have enough subs. And the problem also is with China's ability to track and possibly sink the supercarriers we have, we're not going to want to send those really expensive weapon systems where they're just going to get sunk. So subs are going to be the key thing here. And we don't have enough of them to deploy to fight China and still maintain our defensive perimeter against the Middle East or against Russia or against North Korea. So we're going to have, you know, this straining of the force. And those are the two issues that I think we really need to fixate on for the next five years. 
Well, I hope everybody's listening to you, Brandon. Brandon J. Whitegard, his book is called Winning Space, his piece over in the Washington Times, among other places. And this one is addressing and strengthening the weakness of the U.S. military. I, I, I can't, um, you know, I can't emphasize enough how convinced I am, I, probably by you and others, that the, that the space, the issue of space, somebody's going to get there first and going to dominate the whole world. And I mean, if we do it, we'll be typical. We won't dominate. We won't demand the whole world, you know, kind of give us right. everything. We'll be, we'll be open, whereas the Chinese will be different. So thanks, Brandon. And as always, we appreciate it very Thank much. You. Again, we'll put put it up on the uh, on social media, all the all the places to get his book, which is uh, also by one of my favorite publishers, Republic Book Publishers. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, everybody. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a moment with the great David Horowitz. We'll talk with him, and you can always listen to this interview again over at ProAmericaReport.com. Be right back, Ed Martin, Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Time to talk to David Horowitz. It's been too long. Let's catch up with him. His new book, newest book, is The Enemy Within, How to- How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. Uh, David Horowitz, best-selling author of a gazillion books. David, you have to feel more right than happy because, my gosh, we're in a war, a battle over our country, as you've been talking about for decades. But it feels like we're on the run. All right, what, what do you, what, how do you feel? And we're losing our country very fast. We're in the early stages of a fascist state. Um, my concern with conservatives is that they're too, too nice. Um, don't refer to these people as liberals. They're vindictive bigots. But the Democrat Party is organized to end the two-party system, which is what my book, The Enemy Within, is about. Um, they have conducted a campaign against voter ID. Why would you want to get rid of voter ID except if you want to uh, stuff ballot boxes, which is what they do. They're professionals at it. You have this uh, case in Georgia. First of all, uh, you need a photo ID to get food stamps. The idea that uh, poor blacks or poor minorities are so stupid that they're unable to get themselves an, an ID is ridiculous on its face. If it were true, the remedy would be to make it easier. Uh, you know, let's invest some money, make it easier for everybody to get a photo ID if they need one and don't know how to do it. Um, what's really going on in Georgia is that they don't want, they, they want to be able to steal the next election as they stole the last two. Uh, that's the reality. Uh, and, and look at, and they use the race card. The Democrat Party is an anti-American party, and it's a racist party. And people have to talk using this kind of language because that's where they're at now. Opening the southern border in the midst of a global pandemic is insanity. Uh, the estimates are there'll be a million illegals pouring across the border unvetted, and that 10% of them will have COVID. That's 100,000 COVID carriers. That's the biggest super spreading event ever. And that, yeah, there's no rationale for it. It's just that Biden came in, acted like a dictator, issued 35 uh, uh, executive orders out of spite against Trump. So I do everything Trump did without regard for whether it was beneficial or not. Now we have the largest humanitarian crisis on our border in my lifetime. 
I mean, and it's kids. They're going to have right. 180,000 unaccompanied minors. Uh, epic child abuse by Biden and Kamala Harris and the, the Democrat Party. Uh, we're we're talking. But well, David, let me. Yeah. yeah, but David. By moving you also gain the, the pride yeah. an African American city of $100 million. Uh, Atlanta, right. everybody in charge is black in Atlanta and shifted into a white capital, and all the time they're calling Republicans racist. Uh, we're talking people in the White House. We're talking with David Horowitz. David, let me ask you this: Why is it? Why do, does it, is it? Am I right when I say that too many Americans are passive, and that and that we're 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 standing here kind of taking it, saying, "Well, this is bad, but well, we'll win the next changing. election." When yes, is it, it? that was a problem for about thirty years, but it's changed. It changed with Obama. But it's rapidly changing now, and because of leadership of people like Donald Trump and Josh Hawley and Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz, uh, I think conservatives are waking up that they're, you know, well on the way to losing the country. These guys want to uh, print, print, mind you, five trillion dollars uh, with nothing to back it up, uh, which will cause a terrible inflation to begin with. And they want to say, and they lie. They, everything they do is a lie. This isn't an infrastructure bill. It's a six, you know, child care is an infrastructure. They've got $20 billion allocated. Get this to destroy a racist highway. You know, if this sounds lunatic, it is. But that's because these people <laughs> are delusional. They think they're going to make a new world. They think they're gods. It's, it is right. so dangerous, and that's one of the reasons they want to destroy Christianity and, and any religion. They hate religion because people who are religious, uh, you know, are obedient to a higher power, not to politicians. These politicians right. uh, want to act like gods and run roughshod over over us. So we have a, a repressive regime here that is very dangerous. They've got a one-vote majority in the Congress, and they're carrying out the most radical transformation of America in its history. These people have no respect for anybody who disagrees with them. If you're white and you disagree with them, you'll call you a racist. Right, right. Uh, We're talking with David Horowitz. David uh, Horowitz's newest book is called The Enemy Within, How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. David, I have just a minute left with you. Um, This cancel culture, though, the the number of corporations and other entities that are willing to target people, it's it's never been quite this bad, has it? And it's fascism. When they, you know, take uh, Dr. Seuss off the shelves and close down Peter Pan and Dumbo, this is book burning. <laughs> this is what the Nazis did in the 30s. It's the same mentality. You know, we're, we're all so polite. I mean, everybody calls it cancel culture, but it's fascism. That's right. what it is, and that's what it should be called. Yeah. If you want to find out more, everybody, listen to David Horowitz. Go to and read his books, his newest book, The Enemy Within, How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. David, thanks as always. I got to run. I appreciate you and we'll have you back very soon. All right. We'll talk to you soon. David Horowitz, the great David Horowitz, everybody. Uh, We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. 
a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, a constitutional attorney and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. And now from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. If you live near a college or university, have you noticed how much construction of new buildings is going on? The university I attended has covered almost every inch of its property with magnificent new buildings. Some colleges are building lavish quarters and amenities, such as dorms with single rooms and private baths and state-of-the-art fitness centers. Some people call this the edifice complex. That's a play on the name of a character in Greek mythology who had an unnatural obsession. Many universities have handsome endowments and name the building for a generous donor who contributed to it, but many are borrowing money for this lavish construction. The New York Times reported that Moody's credit rating agency says that 500 elite institutions have doubled their debt in the last 10 years. College enrollments have been declining. I doubt that students are attracted to college by all this luxury. Cost is a much bigger factor with students and their parents. Student indebtedness because of college loans has reached a critical one trillion mark. Default rates on college loans are at an all-time high. Job prospects for college graduates are dismal. This is all causing students to reconsider attending the high-priced universities. And it's also unnecessary. When I attended the Harvard Graduate School, students sat in class on hard, straight chairs. We did not have desks in the classroom. We took our notes on a long, straight piece of wood used in common by a whole row of students, on which students for generations had carved their initials. The edifice complex is contributing to higher tuition and fees for students and to the burden on taxpayers through funding of state universities. Taxpayers are also left on the hook when students are unable to repay their loans. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Do you have a college-bound son or daughter? Do you care about the next generation? At phyllisschlafly.com, we expose the liberal agenda and anti-Christian mindset found on most college campuses and help equip conservative students to stand up for their beliefs. Visit us at phyllisschlafly.com and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Let's pick up a couple of things I was uh, sent by some of you all. Let me encourage you, Pro-America Report uh, listeners, you can get in touch with me directly. It's very simple. Uh, on Twitter, at Eagle Ed Martin, direct messages are open. On Facebook, Ed Martin Live, uh, you can message me directly. It goes right to me. Uh, if you're over on YouTube, well, you better just go send me an email. You can send me an email at ed at edmartinlive.com, ed at edmartinlive.com, uh, straight to me. And then the last thing is I have this texting line that I've kept for you, the listeners. It's, uh, you can text it directly to me. Questions come in, boom, uh, 314-256-1776, 314-256-1776. 1776. Feel free to text me directly there. And I get great feedback from folks. I get folks that send me things to look at. Earlier this morning, I think it was this morning, I got an email from someone pointing out, you know, um, 
There was a congressman who passed away, 84 years old, uh, Congressman Hastings, Al C. Hastings. And the irony of Al C. Hastings, who served for many, many years in the Congress, uh, is that he was impeached. He was a sitting federal judge and he was impeached and removed from the bench by his own party, the party the Democrats voted to take him out of office too. Later, he ran for office and became a congressman and served. But, you know, when the when the proceedings were going on for the impeachment of President Trump both times, uh, a lot of us were saying this is nonsense. And I kept saying, I'll see Hastings should be the one. He was on one of the committees because he'd been in Congress for so long. He had some seniority. He was on one of the committees that was pretty senior and he died of cancer. I never knew the guy. I never you know knew him well. I obviously I have an opinion uh, of people that are uh, impeached uh, for uh, from the federal bench. It doesn't sound like something you want uh, your best uh, people to do. But my point here is the hypocrisy of how he's embraced when he was alive and now in death and very little said about the impeachment, his impeachment. Everyone just as glosses over. They won't do that for Donald Trump. If Donald Trump passes away tomorrow, the first line will be impeached twice and how terrible it was. And both of them were nonsense. But that double standard is no surprise. You are right, another someone else sent me. It's about four days ago. Uh, a, a tweet uh, on Twitter from a, um, I guess, an activist. Um, but it was uh, about the ACLU, the ACLU, uh, which is supposed to be our civil liberties, you know, American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, and they're supposed to fight for civil liberties. And the reality is that they had, they did an analysis, a privacy audit um, about their data sharing, and they hired a specialty. That guy tweeted, and he said, I cannot reveal what I am telling you. Uh, excuse me. I, so this consultant was hired by the ACLU to take a look at how they share data of people that are touching the ACLU, signing up for petitions, involved in what other ways. What he found... And what he could not say publicly except to point to the fact that the ACLU recently announced their online privacy statement has changed. And what they basically found was they um, were sharing with Facebook all kinds of data. Now, I I can't tell if it's only Facebook or others, but what he tweeted was yesterday the ACLU updated their privacy statement to disclose that they share constituent information with service providers like Facebook – for targeted advertising, and this flies in the face of the organization's public advocacy and statements. The point here is ACLU says it's for we the people and our privacy. They say they're going to fight against government intrusion and big companies and all. It turns out they share the constituent information with Facebook, which means they sell it, which means they're making money. In other words, the ACLU, like many of these organizations, starts out with a position that they're going to be tough and then they get bought off. I mean, not formally bought off. They don't come and say, if we buy, give you lots of money, will you do what we want? But effectively, just trust me, if you're, fa- if you're sharing this, the, if you've got thousands, millions of people who are bringing their data to you, like I expect the ACLU would, tons of people sign up for petitions that they do and, and you know, sign up to, to send messages to legislators and all that. And if you're sharing that information with Facebook and you're the ACLU, you make a lot of money. You're getting a lot of money for it. And soon... You're going to change your tune on stuff. It's just it's human nature. This is just human nature. You can't think of it any other way. It's just the reality of life. It's one of the reasons why when you see these think tanks on whatever side, liberal or conservative, that exist for 50, 60, 70 years, they almost always 
drift from their focus. In fact, the Olin Corporation, and I think the founders of the Olin, O-L-I-N, famously said that their uh, foundation should dissolve after about 30 years because they figured it wouldn't uh, stay uh, true to its roots. And they did that. Um, so you find that. You can make a list. Go down them. You find suddenly that some big think tank is taking lots of money from some area or some topic or some group, and suddenly they're softer on it. The most obvious one is the influence of China, the communist Chinese regime in uh, American academia and some of our think tanks. Uh, we can go through a list of that, but let's not do it now. I don't want to bother. All right. One more point I did get sent to me. We've had a number of times on a guest, a great guest, a Tammy Nichols from Idaho. And one of our listeners down in San Diego sent me an email saying, looks like Idaho might go for, go really far on the pro-life front. The Idaho State Senate passed a heartbeat bill, which says when there's a heartbeat detected, 18 days, maybe 24 days, then the baby must be protected. And Tammy Nichols is in the state House of Delegates, uh, the the Iowa House of Delegates. So it moved over to the House and they'll be taking it up. I, th- I expect they'll pass. I texted her and said they'll pass. But good eagle eye to whoever that uh, listener, I think it was name was Thomas in San Diego, who noticed that Idaho one. I, again, I did an interview with an Iowa radio station about the pro-life efforts. Uh, and I invoked the Idaho heartbeat bill um, earlier. Um, I guess it was uh, mid-Wednesday, midday Wednesday when I talked. Uh, and here's what I said. More and more people are pro-life. That's a fact. And more and more of our legislatures in states are going to step up and do these kinds of things. And, and part of the reality that you should be thinking about is that in the next five years, when Roe v. Wade is reversed... It will be a state by state fight and coalescing because they won't ban no matter how they reverse Roe v. Wade. They're unlikely, very unlikely to say ban abortion in America. I don't think they'll go that far. They may say you don't have a fundamental right to privacy that includes abortion. And so the battle will go state to state in states like Idaho and Iowa and Missouri will lead the nation. And California, of course, will lag behind. That'll be part of it. But it'll be this incredible dichotomy. All right, everybody, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for those vis- those listener feedback uh, comments. And thank you to Noah, our great technical director, Joanna R. Booker. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego.